Let me ask you this. Do parents owe it to their children to provide for and protect them? Do parents owe it to their children to provide for and protect them? Do parents owe it to their children to nurture them? I would guess that all or at least most of you would say yes. Absolutely yes. Uh, But what if the parents are going through a hard time? What if you wake up one morning and you just, man, you don't feel like nurturing. You don't feel like providing. You don't feel like protecting. Or, or, or what if the child is going through a hard time? What if little Sally or Johnny or Jenny or Chad or whoever these kids are, why, what, what if they're just being a little stinker that day, right? What if they're just, you know, just a handful? Does that... Does that change anything about parents owing it to their children, provide and protect for them, to nurture them? I'm guessing, again, that most of you, all of you, or most of you would say, no, that doesn't change anything. Parents owe it to their children to provide, to protect, to nurture, no matter what is happening, no matter how they're feeling. No matter if there are difficult circumstances or difficult behaviors to deal with, it doesn't change what they owe to their children. But if that's true, why is it true? Keep those questions in mind as we look together at God's Word this morning. Specifically, we are in Luke chapter 17. It's the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke chapter 17. Luke 17 is one of the chapters from our Bible reading plan this past week. You can grab a copy of that today on your way out. You'll see it right there on the left hand, on the right side, but the left paper. And you can read through the New Testament with us in one year as we have been doing. Uh, all of our Sunday messages are drawn out of our Bible reading plan. So as you're looking at Luke 17, look with me at the teaching of Jesus that Luke has recorded for us in verses 7 through 10. Verses 7 through 10. This is what we read. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, will any of you say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants We have only done what was our duty. So, now wait a minute. This is not a a passage that you hear a lot of teaching on. This is not a passage you're going to find on a wall plaque over a toilet in a Christian's bathroom, right? Or on a coffee mug at a Jesus junk store. You're just not going to find this passage. So what do we do with this passage 
what do we as what do we as disciples or learners under Jesus what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? What does God want us to learn here about about who He is and who we are? Well, what I'd like to do first is, as we always do, consider the context of this passage. Where do we find this passage? Specifically, what's come right before this passage that leads into this passage? So look with me, if we're going to back up, let's back up all the way to verse 3. Beep, beep, beep. See, we're backing up. Yeah, to verse 3. Come on. Look at verse 3. Verses 3 and 4, this is what Jesus just taught. Pay attention to yourselves, said Jesus. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and that brother, that sister, turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must Forgive him. Now, look at what we learn in verse 5 about the apostles' response to this command. How do they respond? The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Increase our faith. Now, think for a moment about the logic of their request in light of Jesus' command to forgive. Verses 3 and 4, and then verse 5. See that? In verse 3, Jesus is talking about sin in general. When your brother or sister deviates from God's path, when they are living like the world and not like Jesus, when they've gone astray, right? That's what he's talking about in general, verse 3. But in verse 4, things get personal. Did you notice that? If your brother sins against you, if your sister sins against you, how often? Seven times in the day even. What are you to do? If he or she repents, then you must forgive him. So you can imagine, if you heard this, what's going through the minds of these apostles. Seven times in the day? Seven times in the day? How are we supposed to deal with that level of offense, Jesus? Uh, with all the anger, the hurt, the fear, the frustration that sin will inevitably produce in us. The way that we will be feeling when somebody is sinning against us. When someone is hurting us. When someone is lying to us. When somebody's taking us for granted, when someone's trying to manipulate us, the things that we'll feel. Is, isn't there a point when I should say, when I have to say, in fact, enough is enough? But Jesus is saying, seven times in the day, if that person comes back and says, I'm sorry, I repent, you must forgive. And so what is their response? They say, Lord, increase our faith. It's a lot, Rabbi. It's a lot. Therefore, we need a lot of faith. You're asking us to do something big. We need a big amount of faith for what you're asking us to do. 
But notice how what follows, moving from 3, 4, and 5, keep going. Notice what follows is actually a response to their response. So Jesus continues to have the conversation with them here. And I believe that Jesus responds to their plea, increase our faith. He responds to that plea in two ways. First of all, he tells them the issue is not the quantity of their faith, but the quality of their faith. Look at how he communicates this in verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, that's tiny, isn't it? Little tiny grain of a mustard seed, mustard plant seed. If you had faith like that even, you could say to this mulberry tree, probably a big one that they were standing near, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. What is Jesus saying here? He's using this exaggerated image of, of uprooting a huge tree and planting it in the sea. He's using that as a hyperbole, an exaggeration. Why is he exaggerating? Because this image, he wants, through this image, he wants to help them understand that though the call to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive an offending brother or sister seems daunting, it seems overwhelming. It is possible through genuine faith. You see, genuine faith connects us with God who is bigger, who is more powerful than anything we'll encounter in this life. That's what Jesus is stressing to them here. But there's a second way that he responds to their response. And that second way is communicated right here in our main passage, verses 7 through 10. How does our main passage fit into the flow here of Christ's teaching? I think it does this. It reveals something important to them about the quality of this tree uprooting, seed planting faith. They felt so overwhelmed, didn't they, by this call of Jesus, this hard call to forgive and forgive and forgive. Friends, what's our response usually when people hurt us? Oh yeah? Right back at you. Get away from me. I don't want that. Guess what you deserve now? Right? Tit for tat. Run away. Ostracize the other person. Try to make them feel as bad as you feel. That is our sinful response. And then to have that happen over and over again. What am I, a doormat? We chuckle, don't we? We chuckle, but when we've been there, it's, hurt, it's hurtful, it's heavy, isn't it? It's hard. And so Jesus is saying, you continue to forgive when that person repents. Continue to forgive. They're asking for more faith. Jesus is saying it's not the quantity of the faith, it's the quality of the faith. And then he wants to tell them something about the quality what is the quality of this faith that even if I have a tiny amount of it, it's powerful? It changes things. What is the quality of that faith? 
He does this in the illustration here in verses 7 through 10. What does it reveal about the quality of genuine faith? We'll look back at our main verses 7 through 10. Jesus has provided here an illustration for his disciples. One that would have made perfect sense, that still should make perfect sense, in light of how the world around them worked. Or more specifically, about the nature of certain relationships. That's the key that Jesus is pointing out here. This is the nature of certain relationships. The relationship that is in view here is the relationship between a master and his servant or his slave. That's the relationship that is in view here. What, it, what are we learning about the nature of this relationship between a master and his slave? Well, take a look. A slave's workday, as we saw, is not completed when he finishes his outdoor tasks coming in from the field. It's not over then. A slave's day, a servant's work day is not completed when he gets hungry or when everyone else in the house is eating. No, his work day is completed when he finishes everything he ought to do. That's when it's over. That's when it's done. A servant or a slave's duty, what he or she ought to do in light of his or her role and in light of the master's position is not a matter of debate. He or she is called to obey, to carry out the master's will. Whatever you think about someone being a servant or a slave, I don't care. That's irrelevant to the point of this par parable. Don't bring that into this. That, does, that misses the point. What is the point of this? The point of this is to highlight the fact that masters command and servants obey. Full stop. That is the nature of that relationship. You see, Jesus' disciples would have understood that perfectly. That would have made perfect sense to them. That's exactly why Jesus is using this illustration. That's the nature of these roles. Is the master uncaring here? We'd like him to be. We'd like him to be the villain immediately. No, he's not uncaring. He provides a time for the slaves, verse 8, to eat and drink. But that time for the servant to eat and drink is after afterward isn't it you see that it's afterward after what after the slave the servant has completed his or her tasks the lord of this estate is not expected to pamper his servants he's not expected to order things in the estate around their feelings He's not expected to even thank them for what they ought to do because that's their job. He's not expected to do these things as if they were doing some kind of favor to him. That's not what's happening here. No one's doing a favor to anyone here. You see, this is the nature of a master-servant relationship. That's just the nature of that relationship. Like so much of Jesus' teaching in the, in the New Testament, 
the main point really comes here into, into focus in the final phrase. Look at verse 10 again. Here's where it comes into, into, into full focus. Listen to how the servants affirm a right understanding of their role. Not only did the disciples get it, but the servant in the story or the illustration, they get it. They understand it. It's not lost on them. What do they say? We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So the word that's translated here in the Greek, the original Greek language that this was written in, the word translated duty here really just means doing what ought to be done. We were doing what ought to be done. In Romans, take a look on the screen. In Romans chapter 15, verse 1, Paul uses that same word in the sense of obligation. What does he say? We who are strong have an obligation. Same Greek word. That is, we, we've done, we, we should do what we ought to do. We have an obligation to bear with the failings, failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, that passage, chapter 14 into, into chapter 15. It is what we ought to do, right? If we're strong to bear with the failings of our weaker in faith, brothers and sisters. In Luke's gospel, this same word here is used in four other places in this gospel that we're looking at, in Luke's gospel. And it always refers to, in all of those other places, those four other instances, it always refers to a debt. What is owed to someone else. That's what the word is. It's about owing someone something. So, to better understand the illustration Jesus is using here in our main passage, Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, we could ask this question. Who owes who what in this passage? Who owes who what in this passage? When we look at the slave's reply in verse 10, it's clear that they are owed nothing. Do you see that? We are unworthy servants. We are unworthy servants. Now, this word is an interesting word. It only appears one other time in the New Testament. It's kind of a rare word. It's found in the Greek Old Testament. It can be translated as worthless or useless or unprofitable. But I think the context here leans toward another translation. Something like what one commentator suggests, which is this. We are servants or slaves to whom no favor is owed. We are slaves to whom no favor is owed. You see, this phrase about the identity of the servants seems to stand in contrast with the rest of the servants' words in verse 10. How do they begin in verse 10? They say, we're unworthy servants. We're servants to whom no favor is owed. But how do they finish in verse 10? They say, we are not owed anything but we have done that which is owed to our master. See the parallel there, the, the balance of it? Do you remember the first question I asked you this morning? Do parents owe it to their children to provide for and protect them? 
Do parents owe it to their children to provide for and protect them, to nurture them? The answer is yes. But why? Because of who they are and because of the nature of that relationship. This is the same point. This is the same point. Because of who they are, that is their parents, and because of the nature of the parent-child relationship. It is what every parent ought to do, isn't it? Sadly, it's not always what happens. Some of you know that from personal experience. My heart goes out to you this morning. You deserved if you didn't have them, you deserve to have parents who provided and protected you, who nurtured you and loved you. It's what they ought to have done. Why? Because of the nature of that relationship. It's an ought. Now, with all that being said, notice how Jesus applies this final verse to his disciples. And if you are his follower, if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple of Jesus, this applies to you. Verse 10, Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We have only done what we ought to have done. So here's where the must of chapter 17, verse 4. Remember that must? That person seven times comes and sins against you and repents. You must forgive them. Here's where that must comes back around and connects to this word in verse 10, commanded. All that you were commanded, that which you must do from God. We are the servants. We are the servants. God is the master. Masters command and servants obey. That is the nature of our relationship. Whatever exactly the apostles were thinking about this hard commandment regarding forgiveness, Jesus' response makes it clear that he understood something about their motives or their perspective when they said increase our faith. Something was going on. They were forgetting or they were at risk of forgetting this fundamental truth about their identity in light of God's identity so what is the quality of this faith that even if you have the mustard seed of this faith can do the impossible? What is the quality of that faith? It's a faith that embraces, that grasps this reality. We are sinful creatures. He is a holy creator. Now let me tell you something. There's a part of every single one of us listening to my voice today that hates what I'm saying. You hate what I'm saying. You don't want to hear me saying this. Maybe you're judging me for saying this today. Maybe you're judging the word of God for saying this today. You better believe this does not jive with our culture today. Filled with expressive individualism. The consumer is right. You do you. The exaltation of the self. You are what's most important. 
Friends, these are lies. Lies that we have imbibed. Lies that we've drunken deeply from that fountain. And therefore, we hate what's being said here. Part of us hates it. We don't want to hear it. Masters command and slaves obey. Servants obey. How can you talk about this? How can you say this about us? If you have an issue, you take it up with Jesus, not me. This is Jesus speaking to us. No, not the poster boy Jesus who's always about love all the time, right? Oh, Jesus is love all the time. Jesus wouldn't do that. He was loving. Read your Bible. Read the New Testament. Was Jesus always loving? Absolutely. 100%. Did that love always look like we would expect it to look? Nope. Did not. What is the quality of this faith? It recognizes, it's built on, it grasps that we are sinful creatures. He is our holy creator. So let's take a few minutes and put this into some really practical terms, okay? Why is this passage so important? Because, take a look, it anchors us in the fundamental ought of our relationship to God. It anchors us in the fundamental ought of our relationship to God. If you want to know God in truth, if you want to serve God, you have to start right here. This is fundamental. This is foundational. Let me suggest two reasons this is critical. Take a look. First, this passage corrects us when we wrongly believe that God is somehow in our debt. This passage corrects us when we wrongly believe that God is somehow in our debt. The 17th century commentator Matthew Henry put it plainly. He said, take a look, God cannot be a gainer by our services and therefore cannot be made a debtor by them. When you serve God, you're not giving God something he didn't have. You're not doing something for God that he needed you to do. He doesn't owe you because you've done something for him. He's not in your debt in that way. Based on the context and Jesus' response, it sure seems like Jesus wanted to correct some misguided thinking among the apostles. Thinking that seemed to equate, based on 7 through 10 how he corrects them, thinking that seemed to equate their obedience with going above and beyond for God. Right? Oh, you're asking me this hard thing, God? Whoa, that's a tall order, Jesus. It's a tall order, man. I don't know, but I might, I might think about going above and beyond for you, Jesus, because you're that special to me. Right? Above and beyond. Jesus, what you're calling us to do is like next level, Lord. Isn't it enough that we've followed you? Isn't it, isn't it enough that we've left our homes, sacrificed these things? Hasn't our obedience thus far, isn't all of that enough? And so maybe they thought if they went above and beyond, 
God would then have some special blessing for them, right? He'd have some kind of special appreciation for them that when they were in Jesus' presence or in God the Father's presence, he would be like, hey, you, get over here. Guess what? Guess what? Man, I was, I was really struggling, man, that fourth quarter, and you came in. You're my clutch player, bro. You're my clutch player, girl, right? You really came through for me. That's not what God's going to say to you. That's not the nature of our relationship with God. Jesus is correcting that. Sometimes we fall into versions of this mindset, don't we? Father, I have made some serious sacrifices as of late, Lord, And you know I've been steering clear of those sins that once consumed me. I've been walking in victory, Lord. You know it. Therefore, would you please grant that very special prayer request that I have? Right? Would you give me that thing that I've always longed for? The one that, the thing that you probably kept out of my grasp because I I just wasn't doing well enough. But you know, Lord, I'm doing well enough now. I'm really on fire. Or put it the other way. God, God, why is all this hard stuff happening to me? I've been doing everything you've asked of me. I've been doing everything you want me to do. I've been doing the hard things. I don't get it. What's happening? Why aren't things going my way? Do you see the problem with this thinking? Do you see the problem? It assumes the kind of relationship with God in which he owes us something when we do what he wants. But we just heard what Jesus said about that. It's not the nature of our relationship with God. That's a sinful distortion It's the kind of distortion that people like us would come up with, right? I'm going to make a deal with you, God. (laughs) I'm going to make a deal with you, God? You've got to find that funny. Psalm 2 says God sits and laughs in the heavens. Right? He sits and laughs at the hubris, the arrogance The pride of these creatures that he has made by his goodness and mercy has given us life. He sits and laughs when we say things and we act like, I'm going to make a deal with you, God. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Jesus is helping us here. He's correcting us here. Brothers and sisters, friends, we exist For God, he does not exist for us. We need him. He doesn't need us. When it comes right down to it, we do everything he commands because he is the creator and we are the created. We forgive because we ought to forgive. We abstain because we ought to abstain. We speak because we ought to speak. We go because we ought to go. We bless because we ought to bless. Why? Because our creator said so. Full stop. 
That's it. That's the foundation. That's fundamental. Our obedience requires no other reason. Do you believe that? Now, that brings us to another idea. This passage is also important because second, take a look, it reminds us of our fundamental ought when even better motives are muddled. This reminds us of our fundamental ought when even better, better motives are muddled. Even though our obedience requires no other reason, God has in fact given us even better motives to obey. Even better motives to obey. Motives that build on rather than replace this fundamental ought. You see, fundamental foundation. We build on that because God in His mercy, in the light of His revelation, right, what He's revealed to us, have, has given us even better motives. What motives am I talking about? How about thankfulness, gratitude? How about joy? To act out of joy. Maybe a recognition of the goodness of God's commands. We see that God is good and we see that his commands to us are good. Anyone out there ever lived in conformity to the world, lived like the world? Rebelled against what people were telling you and said, I don't want to listen to you, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, no, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to consume that whether, whether you say so or not. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to save myself for marriage. You know, write down the list of things. I don't want to do any of that stuff. And then later on you look back and you said, wow, I should have I listened. I see now all the consequences that come from what I was doing, the way I was living my life. I should have listened. You see, sometimes in hindsight we see the goodness of the commands of a good God. We see what he's trying to show us in this path that he's laid out for us. But highest on that list, thankfulness, joy, recognition of his goodness, highest on that list of motives should be love. Love, as we heard a few chapters back in Luke. Take a look, Luke chapter 10, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. The Apostle John later talks about this love. He writes this, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. They're good. And we see that. We understand that. That's at least where we want to be. Sometimes we feel like they're burdensome, don't we? But we want to see the truth about those commandments. We want to love God wonderfully. Brothers and sisters, friends, please hear this. Wonderfully, the servant master image is not the only image in Scripture that describes our relationship with God, is it? It's not the only one. 
of the many images revealed in Scripture. Of the many images, the most precious has to be Father, children. Father, children. That image of the father and child. You see, we love our father because he first loved us. He made us children through his love. And that love should, above all, fuel our obedience to do what we ought to do. We don't, we don't simply do it because we ought to do it. We do it because we, we want to do it. We love to do it because we love him. We want to spill out our lives just like Jesus spilled out his life on the cross for us. Love. But when any of these better motives get muddled because of sin, and you know as well as I do, that happens regularly. When we don't feel that love, when we don't feel that joy, when we are not grateful people, this ought should always serve as our foundation. It should always be the backstop, right? It should always be the, the, uh, the what do you call it, on a road, right? The, the barricade or the, the rail, the guardrail, the guardrail. This should always be there, this ought, so that when we're not feeling it, right, it always stops us and say, I know what I ought to do. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in marriage counseling and talked with a husband or a wife or both specifically about what God has called them to do as a husband or as a wife. And the tendency that I'm always fighting against is the tendency to say, well, I'll do this when she starts doing that. I'll do this when he lines up with that. Or someone walks away and says, Pastor, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this into practice. And then the next week we sit down together and guess what? Well, I tried that. I tried doing what you said. I tried doing what, what the Word said about this. But after a few days, I realized that it wasn't changing her or changing him. And I always have to ask him, why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you think it's going to change that person? Because it's like a magical incantation, a formula that if you do it, somehow it will fix everything. Is that your goal? Shouldn't your goal be because God said you should do it? Because it's an ought? Right? Do you live to please God above everything else? Then you obey him. You do what he's called you to do, no matter what your spouse is doing. Make his pleasure number one. Not their pleasure, not your pleasure. Do what you should do. You see, that's the foundation. That is what fun, is fundamental here. This is what Jesus is providing for us. Jesus talks a lot about the other images 
of the nature between, describing the nature of our relationship with God, including the father and the children image. But this is an important corrective because he knows we can run away with that and we can base everything on our own feelings. Please hear this. We can expect God's favor. We can expect God's favor. Favor. We absolutely can expect God's favor. Why? Again, Matthew Henry, take a look. We expect God's favor not because we have by our services made him a debtor to us, but because he has made by his promises himself a debtor to his own honor. Oh, wow. Did you see that statement? If you're not blown away, you're not getting it. You're not understanding what it's saying. He has made himself a debtor to his own glory through his promises. That's why we can expect his favor. And God's undeserved, unmerited favor, it's called by another name in Scripture. Grace. Grace. That's what grace means. And wonderfully, God is amazingly gracious for the sake of his glory. Amen? He's wonderfully gracious to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1 says. He's amazingly gracious for the sake of his glory. And as we learn from Scripture, the gift of Jesus himself is the ultimate expression of that grace. The fact that Jesus stood there with these men and revealed truth to them and spoke to them about identifying themselves as unworthy servants was an absolute expression of his unrivaled grace. That they could listen to it from the lips of the Son of God. That they could be reminded by the Son of God, they are the servants, he is the master, he commands, they obey. That is grace. That is grace. But it's bigger than that. God gave us Jesus himself. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. Are you ready for it? This is the good news. Though God doesn't owe you anything, he gave you everything when he gave you Jesus. Would you please hold on to that? He doesn't owe you anything. Right? If you're there this morning, get off of that pedestal. Get off of it. Step down right now. God does not owe you anything. But he gave you everything when he gave you Jesus. Why is forgiveness an ought? Because of the forgiveness he bought for us on the cross. That's why it's an ought. We forgive as we've been forgiven. It's what we ought to do. We bless as we've been blessed. It's what we ought to do. We love as we've been loved. It's what we ought to do. However you are struggling, please remember this. You don't need more faith this morning. You need true faith. You need true faith. Even a little bit. A faith that first and rightly sees 
the fundamental nature of our relationship with the God who made us and then, and then receives power through God's Spirit because of God's Son to not only live out that ought, but also to do so from a heart of gratitude and joy and worship and love. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Let's thank God for this important reminder from his word.